Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for giving us the most precious thing you have, your time. We never want to waste it. That's why we try to turn down the noise in the news cycle, talk about the things that matter, get good information, and try to discern the times we live in. One of the ways we do that, of course, is we got to look backwards a little bit. We got to review. We got to take stock of what has happened in the past so that we can pay attention to what's happening in the present and prepare for what happens in the future. We didn't do that very well during COVID. Uh, Remember a lot of the cries of do something, uh, the death nail of accountability when it comes to government intervention into the public's lives. Now we got more and more evidence of it. Let's go to the Washington Post. Uh, This particular piece was written by Tony Rom. The headline, the more you submit, the more we get paid. That's a quote, how fintech fueled COVID aid fraud. This was so predictable, folks, before we even get into the funny. When you're dumping billions of dollars into aid stuff with the battle cry of do something and you put very little controls on it, fraud's going to happen. Everybody that had a functional frontal cortex when it was happening knew that this was going to happen. But because it's an emergency and everybody's got to do something and politicians got to look like they're do something and the public's yelling do something and the media screaming do something. They did something, and now we're finding out the big old mess of it. Uh, The faster, the better, the piece goes. The workers were told at the height of the coronavirus pandemic as the little-known financial technology company Blue Acorn raced to review small businesses that sought federal loans. Speeding through applications, Blue Acorn employees and contractors allegedly began to overlook possible signs of fraud, according to interviews and communications later amassed by investigators on Capitol Hill. The company weighed whether to prioritize, quote, monster loans that will get everyone paid, end quote. As the firm's co-founder once said, and investigators found that Blue Acorn collected about a billion dollars in processing fees while its operators may have secured fraudulent loans of their own. The allegations of Blue Acorn and several other firms are laid out in a sprawling, roughly 120-page report. We're going to link to it again. Read the report for yourself. Don't ever take people's words for us. Read the raw data. 120-page report released Thursday by the House Select Committee on the Coronavirus Crisis. Would to God that that committee gets half of the attention that some of these other ones are, but that's neither here nor there. A congressional watchdog tasked to oversee roughly $5 trillion in federal pandemic aid. $5 trillion in pandemic aid. The 18-month probe, spanning more than 83,000 pages of documents and shared in advance with the Washington Post, contends there was rampant abuse among a set of companies known as fintechs, that's F-I-N tech, which jeopardized federal efforts to rescue the economy and siphoned off public funds for possible private gain. Who could have thought that might happen? Oh, yeah, we did, because we were talking about it as it happened. 
Back to the piece. Some of the companies involved had never before managed federal aid. Boy, there's your red flag, the report found. At the height of the pandemic, they failed to hire the right staff to thwart fraud. Try saying that three times fast if you're a hillbilly. At the height of the pandemic, they failed to hire the right staff to thwart fraud. They amassed major profits for fees generated from the loans, large and small, genuine and problematic, and they processed and reviewed them all, and they repeatedly escaped scrutiny from the Small Business Administration, putting billions of dollars at risk, the probe found. Trouble began under the Trump administration after the Congress first authorized the Paycheck Protection Program, PPP. Everybody remembers that one, right? In 2020, the roughly $800 billion initiative saw the government disperse more than 11 million loans to companies at risk of shutting their doors for good, or at least claiming to, helping them keep afloat until the health emergency eased. Let's pause for a second. The health emergency that was also caused by government overreaction in some cases, government inaction in some cases, and people just genuinely not knowing what to do in other cases. Back to the piece. But the money became a tempting target for malicious actors, gee, you think, who took advantage of lax rules and inadequate oversight to bilk the government for staggering sums. I'm sorry, let's just pause right here. This was all so predictable. You can't dump money without any controls on it all over the economy. And of course, people are going to be smarter, faster, and more lean to do fraud than the government is to hand it out and prevent it. This was so predictable, especially during a crisis that in some ways was perpetrated by a health crisis, in other ways perpetrated by a government who overreacted and did things it didn't need to do to try to answer it and look like it was doing something. My Lord. Back to the piece. Fintech companies, including Blue Acorn, Wombly, and Cabbage, that's Cabbage with a K, you may have heard them advertised, were supposed to serve as middlemen. <laughs> Middlemen's usually where the fraud is, folks, for those of you from Logan. Helping applicants complete paperwork and processing their requests for aid on behalf of the banks and other large financial institutions. In some cases, though, the digital firms instead became vectors for the worst waste, fraud, and abuse, according to congressional investigators laid by Representative James Clyburn, the panel's chair. At Blue Acorn, listen to this. For example, loan reviewers tied to the company told the select committee they were pressured to, and this is a quote, push through PPP applications even if they seem suspicious. You don't say. The company was especially interested in processing high-dollar applications, the report stated, evenly created and its special internet VIPPP label to ensure the biggest borrowers for which carried the promise of greater fees could receive expedited treatment. The approach may have cost the government through house investigators could not compute a final sum. It also came at the expense of smaller borrowers, arguably in the greatest need, according to the report, as one Blue Acorn co-founder, Stephanie Hawkridge, appeared to remark over the messaging service Slack about these applications, who effing cares? Well, I'll tell you who cares. Not enough people. This is yet another example of what happens when government is unaccountable. You have massive fraud, waste, and abuse. No, the government probably didn't mean for it to go this way, but not preventing it is the same as allowing it to happen. Now, when they were dumping all these trillions of dollars in the economy and billions of loans with almost no controls on them, everybody knew this is going to happen down the road. But of course, nobody cared because of the expediency of the moment. What did we start with? You have to look into the past, to understand the present and to prepare for the future. I don't think we're doing a good job of learning the lessons of COVID. 
oh, we've learned the buzzwords and we've learned how to fit that crisis into our priors so that we can continue to think what we already thought. But we're not learning the lessons of what unaccountable government that is not well managed and not well administered and how it completely failed us in all in a crisis. And now we're finding out just how un unaccountable it was. Maybe, just maybe, we should pay attention to what this committee is doing and not some of the other committees that are just making a whole lot of noise. Understand that we should be holding our government accountable now, that we should be putting people in office that actually know what they're doing, and that we should have competent government going forward because there will be another crisis and there will be more cries of do something. And there will be more and more folks screaming for the money helicopters to come out of D.C. and save us all. And we'll know what will happen if we don't have good people in charge of that and we don't have good accountability of where that money goes and what it is for. We're doomed to repeat this crisis and these problems again because we refuse to learn the lessons. We'll link to this piece, read it all, and then just understand that you're going to be in the minority of people who does quote effing care because we're not learning this lesson and our politicians are telling us so our media is telling us so in the lack of coverage and the general population is telling us so because not enough of them are talking about it we should do better more hotel right after this Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. I love back her telling Andrew Donaldson. Uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I think it's a instructive point to bring up and understand. You know, very obviously that I'm from West Virginia. I'm proud to be from West Virginia. I love the state of West Virginia, but my beloved home state has problems, both politically, economically, culturally, you name it. We got issues. OK, uh, stereotypes come from a place. Yeah, we've got some issues. Here's something I want to point out. When I went to vote the first time in 1998, the state of West Virginia was dominated by the Democratic Party. Uh, in the year 2000, they only had one state side, statewide seat that would be the governorship that was in Republican hands and only a handful of Republican legislators in both houses of the legislature. The Democrats had super majorities in everywhere possible all across the board. Fast forward to 2022, the election we just had, the Democratic Party now only has one person in statewide office. That'd be Senator Joe Manchin. Everything else is Republicans, super majorities. And there are now only 14 Democratic legislators in both houses of the legislature, total, combined. That's a massive swing for just 25 years, just a little short of, from one party completely dominating to another party completely dominating. 
But my point here is not that one party swung that fast. Yes, politics can change. It's if you look at the stats for the state of West Virginia, almost nothing has changed. We're still in high 40s on any list of states when it comes to things like education, economic improvement, uh, freedom of abilities. Any list that matters economically and politically, we're still in just about last place or close to it. We were that way under complete Democratic control. We're under that now under complete Republican control. And under the last census, we've also found out we're also not only the only state in America that is losing population, but precipitously losing it. West Virginians are an endangered species. I would like for some political people to take that seriously. I would like the people of the state of West Virginia to take that seriously and hold their politicians accountable for that. But my point is, and I can't drive this home enough, if you have empirical evidence that complete one party rule one way, and complete one party rule the other way, and you're getting the exact same results, whatever the solution to the problems is, isn't going to be in a political party. I don't know how to put it any plainer than that. I'm pretty cynical when it comes to political parties. I'm a registered, unaffiliated voter for a very good reason. I don't trust either one of them. Neither one of them have earned my vote. Neither one of them earned my trust. Neither one of them earned my loyalty. My country has my loyalty. I vote for the best person possible on my ballot. And frankly, go ahead and get mad and send your email now. If it, there's nobody that's qualified for that office on my ballot, I'm not voting for anybody because I will not put somebody unqualified in an office with my name on it. That's just where I'm at on it. You can go ahead and justify it any way you want to. That's where I'm at. But this is why when I look at my own home state where I love, where most of my family lives, where one of my children still goes to college, where I hope to be buried someday, if it all goes well and the creek don't rise. I love my state, but it has had, in recent memory, in my adult lifetime, complete domination by one political party, and then complete domination by the other political party. And nothing much changed, except there's a whole lot less of us. There's a whole lot more poverty. There's a whole opioid epidemic going on. And the state's future is as bleak as it's ever been. So the answer is not in the political parties. It's not in buzzwords. It's not in ideological politics. It's going to be in somewhere in the middle when all of them together come together and start figuring out a way to actually start solving the problems. I hope that's an object lesson to people who think if you just win one more election, everything's going to be smiling roses and unicorns that poop out ice cream. It's not so. Your political parties aren't going to save you. All of us working together, and yes, that includes across political lines sometimes, just might. Learn the lessons from folks that live it the hard way in the hills and hollers of West Virginia. Doesn't matter which political party's in charge. If they don't do the right things by the people, nothing changes except the titles and the callers and the political parties. And the people continue to suffer for it. More Hertel right after this.
Ah, uh, welcome back to Hurtel. Been way, way, way too long. One of my favorite people. If you don't like the fact I have a podcast, here's one of those guys to blame for it because he's kind of responsible for some of this mess. Uh, Yale Elosowski, our good friend from the Consumer Choice Center. My friend, it's been too long. How are you doing? Sir Andrew, um, I am doing uh, swimmingly. There's been a lot of uh, interesting stuff happening, but overall, I'm trying to endure the uh, cold winter that's mounting here in uh, continental Europe and then uh, keeping abreast of all the issues impacting our lives and freedoms, man. There's a lot out there. Yeah, we were, we've been having a lot of cold rain. I keep telling people it's good German weather and they don't really understand what I'm talking about because part of Germany, uh, when you're in the Rhineland Faults, you actually don't get a lot of snow. You just get cold rain all winter and it's brutal. So I hear you, my friend. Um, this is an area where you know way more about it than I do. Uh, I always turn to you on things like crypto and things like this, but this FTX thing, I don't think this is actually a crypto story. I think this is an out-and-out fraud story, and I think it's backwards to treat it any other way than to start with, this is one of the most massive frauds we've ever seen in the recorded history of humankind. Am I wrong to take that angle on this? You're not, and um, Andrew, I wish the media were full of people like you, because that is the correct angle. Uh, This is a $32 billion company that essentially evaporated overnight. And had nothing to do with, you know, the price of X or Y coin or token or technology. It had everything to do with uh, rampantly, uh, allegedly, criminal behavior. And this is your classic Ponzi scheme. Uh, There's a lot of different uh, scenarios where money was going in between various entities. And anyone who was a customer at uh, the exchange of concern, FTX, uh, finds that they don't have their funds there anymore. So I think there we can we can kind of uh, paint the picture of the beginning of this. Uh, how far back do you want me to go? Because this uh, this goes back way back into the summer. Yeah, it goes back away, and it's important to talk about how far back this goes because people hear something like, "Well, they're they're putting it in bankruptcy and will go to bankruptcy court." This is not going to be a bankruptcy. I've talked to multiple lawyers. I've talked to our friends that does, look. I've been through a bankruptcy personally. I know that process. There's no records. They cannot do a bankruptcy on this because there's no records. That's how bad this is. And that tells me, look, I'm a simple guy. If you're not keeping records from the go, you're not really a company to start with because companies have to do things like compliance and reporting. There's no records. So as you take us back beyond this summer, even if you want to go all the back to the Alameda research and all that stuff, when you take us back, walk us back to that point and understand that there's no records of any of that. That's what tells me what I need to know about this situation right there. Exactly. Yeah, there's um, to go back to the very beginning, you got this kind of uh, wunderkind, wunderkind is uh, the term that was used a lot. This kind of bushy haired fellow, Sam Bankman Freed, and he started this group, the Alamedia Research. So it began as a company uh, that operated, you know, throughout uh, Barbados and the Virgin Islands and, and the Bahamas. And this was set up as a as a trading firm. Your normal hedge fund, you know, they would take risk, they'd take capital, make bets, do leverage, they do all of that. And the founding myth is that they were able to find a discrepancy in the price of the uh, Bitcoin token in various Asian markets and South Korea specifically. And because of whatever arbitrage, they were able to build up significant capital. It was so much capital that they thought that they had the opportunity to create their own crypto exchange, which later became FTX. They set it up in the Bahamas. Uh, Sam Bankman-Fried is the CEO of FTX, moved there, 
uh, continued with FTX, grew it into a crypto exchange, while at the same time Alameda Research, which was also the hedge fund that he was CEO of, was doing trades and they were using various tokens. And essentially, the beginning of this really was very commingled. And from the very beginning, you had Alameda Research, which was sending money to FTX. FTX was sending money to Alameda. It was not very clear exactly which entity had which money. And these are all customer deposits. So you had various you know, individual consumers using this platform. You had uh, entire other hedge funds. You had people like Kevin O'Leary from Shark Tank. Uh, and then you had a lot of the uh, endorsement, endorsement celebrities who later came on who also were buying stock using this. And essentially what we had building up was this cryptocurrency exchange that existed around the world, but was only available to certain people because the U.S. entity, that is FTX, really did not have that many customers. So a lot of people actually register with the international version of FTX, so the one that's regulated in the Bahamas, where it's a bit more lax, there aren't as many requirements in terms of your address, your date, your financial information, your driver's license. So a lot of people were using this in order to buy and trade cryptocurrencies. And going back to July was really when Sam Bakeman fried came out in the four. This is when we had um, a couple of Ponzi's that blew up in the summer. We had uh, Terra Luna. Uh, Terra USD was this stablecoin that was being used by certain areas and they once the bitcoin price dipped essentially this whole thing went bust uh, big old ponzi uh, we had three ac same thing so you, you had a lot of bankruptcies and things that were forming in june july of this year and it was alameda and ftx both that came together and started gobbling up some of these institutions um, I'm thinking of BlockFi, I'm thinking of Voyager Digital. Uh, so these are various uh, crypto brokerage services or exchanges or yield offering services. All that you need to know is that this company then took on a lot of those debts. And because the money was wishy-washy every which way, it was not really clear who was part of which organization, who was part of which firm. And by now we know that it was basically a conglomerate of about 150 different companies that were set up under these various umbrellas. Uh, there was capital that was moving back and forth. And what broke it all was a story in Coindesk in late September, early October, which showed that the majority of the capital at Alameda Research were actually these tokens that were the base token for FTX. They call it the FTT token. So once that set in, then came the FUD, fear, uncertainty, doubt. You had Binance, who held a lot of these tokens, realized what was happening, sold them off, created a bank run. And basically, at the end of the day, FTX completely out. Maybe they'll go to bankruptcy. Maybe, as you state, they, they don't really have the, the ability to do so. But what it ended up in is a lot of people who had their money at FTX, that money was actually going to Alameda. And a lot of it was being funneled through the political system, through donations to both sides, to both political parties. And now we have uh, this entire story. We have Sam Bakeman fried giving interviews and a lot of confusion about what this means for cryptocurrencies, for regulation and the future of this industry. Yeah. And again, we'll get to the crypto in a minute, but that's like the second or third level story to this. Another part of this, you mentioned the media and how the media has or hasn't covered this. Here we go again. We have a template in the American media now of the wonder kid, you called it, the savior tech person. 
how many times are we going to see this movie before we start being a little skeptical of these people? Because, you know, the Sam Bankman freed guy has obviously gotten the Elizabeth Holmes treatment, for lack of a better way to put it. We've seen this multiple times now. These people are darlings. They don't get any skepticism until they do. You know, gradually, then suddenly the old quote goes, this is a big problem because, you know, got all credit to Coindesk for busting this thing wide open. Where's the New York Times? Where's the Washington Post? Where's any, you know, ProPublica, anybody? Where was anybody in actually investigating all this money flowing around all over? Look, this went into entertainment. It went into sports. It went into politics. These tentacles go deep. The savior complex narrative is crippling journalism when it comes to the tech area. Is that fair? I think it's probably correct. I mean, obviously, we're everyone wants to be on the side of tech innovation. Um, but what we've seen in many of these cases, and I, I think a very good litmus test is uh, anybody who shows up with Bill Clinton at an event and sits to his left is, is probably someone not to be trusted. Because he is the same with Elizabeth Holmes, is the same with a lot of these tech guys. I mean, it was the same with uh, Solyndra back in the day during the Obama administration. Uh, you have political forces and you have media forces that end up rooting for various industries. And I'm all for that. If it's a good industry, if they're uh, treating their customers well, if they've got good business practices, they provide a great product. Uh, but there's always got to be skepticism the second that that touches public policy and it touches the laws and regulations that really govern our lives. And I think what you saw with the Sam Bank Bankman Freed situation is that there was so much money that was being handed out at all levels. You mentioned entertainment. Uh, you have the arena in Los Angeles. You have um, all the money that was being donated to various political action committees. Uh, we know now that there was a lot of money that was going to the Republican groups as well. We only have the public information on the Democratic giving in the very beginning of this. Uh, but we know that there was a lot of money that was being handed out to various committees who were dealing with different types of crypto regulation. And the hope was that FTX would be able to get a license better than any other company. And they were trying to set up the rules so that they would be advantaged. So, you know, when it comes to the media, very much the same. Uh, there's this new outlet semaphore uh, that is out there that is uh, staffed by many former New York Times journalists. Uh, they have to forever write in all of their articles that Sam Bankman Freed is an investor. And he put a lot of money in that. I believe it's up, upwards of 100 million. And that is, is sort of the issue with this story is that because he's given money and all these different places, because he becomes such a huge figure in terms of not just political giving, but advertisements, celebrity endorsements, you know, he became someone that was a bit untouchable or just had the perfect story for journalists. He had the perfect, here's a vegan entrepreneur who doesn't care about making money, who just wants to make the planet better for everyone while he's also taking those customer deposits and washing it through his own system. And, and who knows where all of that is ending up. Sauce keep joining us. Look, you have consumer choice beside your name on everything you do. As much as we rail against government and regulation, justifiably so most of the time, this kind of out and out fraud, this really kills consumers. 
especially when it's something like an emerging technology, which the whole idea that, look, you've pitched this to me personally, like, look, this is the entry level thing. Everybody can get into it. This is going to be the next wave. We all understand crypto now isn't what crypto 10, 12, 15 years from now is going to be. But when you have out and out fraud like this and when it's in a new market like crypto and you have a very old story of a con man who fit perfectly into the media narrative and the public's perception, look, you get con because you want to be con. That's the way it goes. And people wanted to be conned here. Take the consumer choice angle of this. This really hurts consumers and hurts consumers' confidence, especially on something that's an emerging market, right? Yeah, and it, I, I think um, as Consumer Choice Center, we're one of the first groups um, who actually put something out into the public and informed Congress of, of what was happening. So we started writing about it in late August, early September. And we sent letters to both the House Finance Committee and the Senate Agricultural Committee beginning in mid-October. Um, by then, we had not yet seen the Coindesk article. I believe it came out just after that. But already, all of the different summer shenanigans of, of SBF, of FTX, and Alameda Research, they were kind of on display. And our fear at the time was that, look, this guy has an in for the regulation, and things are going to be written in a way that will benefit him and the company and are likely going to not only be bad for all future companies and competitors, but for all crypto consumers of the future, because something's going to happen, something's going to bust, it's going to cause prices to go down, it's going to, we're going to lose confidence in the system. Uh, I mean, cryptocurrency as an industry itself used to be uh, over $3 trillion. Now it's down to about $1 trillion, And, you know, thanks to this, it might descend even further. And I think, again, it has to do with that uh, elementary fraud and criminal aspect. And, and again, all, these th all of these things are illegal in the normal market for any other company. Insider trading, uh, fraud, wire fraud, all the stuff. There are already things on the books. Hopefully, they'll pursue it. Uh, but you know, our, our, uh, our good friend, Sang Bigman Freed here, he's been uh, wined and dined and doing plenty of interviews. And uh, I don't know if we're necessarily doing the right thing uh, right now and just kind of letting this guy go off. So hopefully, uh, hopefully the justice system will work this time. Yeah, Yael Lasowski joining us. I think this is going to the justice system pretty quickly because, again, bankruptcy cannot touch this because there's not enough records to do it. I, I That's kind of where this feels like it's going, and we'll see what happens there. You already mentioned it. You sent letters to Congress because y'all are smart, and you know what's coming next. Uh, the overreaction and the do-something cries. Congress doesn't have a great track record of do something, especially when it's a high technology, new technology sphere, because frankly, they don't know what they're talking about most of the time. We've watched those hearings. It's frankly embarrassing. I assume people like you who are big proponents of Bitcoin, the idea, not the fraud that we saw here with the FTX exchange, but the monetary system itself. You got to be a little worried right now because, boy, this is about as wide a door to kind of crack down and regulate as you're going to get in a long time. What do you see coming down the pike and what do you think folks that are advocates for Bitcoin and things like this going forward should be looking to do right now to be proactive and get in front of it? Well, I'll give a counterintuitive answer that I myself as a, a Bitcoin user who uh, hold my, I hold my own keys and have my own wallet. Uh, I feel great because my funds were not tied up in this exchange. Uh, my funds were not tied up in any of the exchanges that you know went bust in the summer. And I think that's the kind of principal idea of cryptocurrencies. It's an alternative to the traditional banking system and you are supposed to own your digital assets. And I think unfortunately for a lot of people who put their money on these different 
brokerages, exchanges, and the like, their stuff is tied forever. And who knows if they'll get it. And there's plenty of other bankruptcies. Uh, I'm getting all the emails all the time of these companies, BlockFi, Celsius Network, all the rest. So personally, I feel fine. As someone who pays attention to the political system and will be impacted uh, on this at some level, yeah, I'm worried about it. And, you know, there there's a little bit of an infighting that's happening in D.C. There's a little bit of talk between the uh, CFTC, Commodities Futures Trading Commission, and the SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission, about who should get to regulate what, what should the rules be. There are various propositions going on in the House and the Senate. Uh, some of the loudest people are people like Senator Elizabeth Warren, who has never liked crypto uh, from day one. Uh, I have an article that should come out this week, Andrew, about uh, responding to her directly because she's had a lot of pieces on this. You know, if you're a progressive, if you care about uh, the people who are downtrodden, you know, you should actually be for cryptographic uh, currencies for things like Bitcoins. I I think she errs in many ways. Uh, I think the biggest impact will be with, are we going to allow innovation to occur? Will we allow Americans to be able to take their funds and take them to an exchange or brokerage and get into cryptocurrencies in the first place? That's more what I worry about are the on-ramps. If we regulate the on-ramps in a way that nobody can do it unless you give you know, the, the blood of your second child and every picture you've ever held and your social security number, it's going to be difficult. It's not going to grow. I see this as an alternative. So that's really what we need to protect. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. Yeah, I love Sassy joining us. We just talked to our friend uh, Danielle Zantillary about this. In traditional things like real estate investment, where the you know the SEC has regulations of you have to have so much financial income, or you are not quote unquote considered financially literate enough to invest, and that's it. It becomes a gatekeeping mechanism, which isn't fair. Let's let's zoom out for just a second while I got you because you are based in Europe. You just spent some time in Brussels. This is one of those things where the EU and DC are probably going to regulate a little differently. We're also hearing things now about the EU and Twitter. You're over there. It, it This technology stuff is global now. Talk about that balance between what the EU does in Europe and what DC is doing and how that back and forth is really kind of pushing where technology is going because these big companies, the Googles, the Facebooks, Meta, whatever we're calling it now, Twitter now is under their crosshairs. And now all this crypto stuff's going to be next. They've got to navigate both of those, and that's going to shape the future of a lot of this, isn't it? Yeah, and I would say if I were to sum up the European approach, it's regulate first, innovate later. Uh, so this is not... Uh, <laughs> if you're trying to do anything innovative, the EU is is hardly the first place you want to start. It's it's not your founding location, we'll just say that. Uh, but you know the different approaches, you have the European Union, uh, both the Commission and the Parliament have put together like a markets and crypto assets a piece of legislation. Um, I've actually been trying to chase down the author of this. Um, his name is uh, Stefan Berger. He's a German fellow. He's an, a member of the European Parliament. So he's the architect of this. And uh, he's made a lot of uh, big claims that you know the European legislation would not have allowed an FTX, which I find very laughable and bogus. And unfortunately, we have like a growing sort of I don't want to say Luddite contingent amongst lawmakers, but I, I will say a lot of them who are way more skeptical of, of technology. And there are bad actors. There are bad actors in absolutely everything. But the answer is just to have good, smart policy that allows people to innovate. And what the EU is doing is they just want to clamp down. And that's kind of the only answer that the EU has. They don't talk about how we can have better tech investments or a better environment. How can we have a Silicon Valley you know, in Berlin or Paris or anything like that. It's just about how do we penalize the American companies? So unfortunately, there's a bit of a 
nationalistic fervor against American tech companies in Europe. And I, I think that's leading to a lot of bad policy. And we see that a little bit coming out of Washington, D.C. as well. There's a, you know, we're in a, a grand uh, ideological battle with China and we're cutting down our tech leaders. We're cutting down on uh, many of the companies who are providing innovation. And it's giving a leg up to a lot of Chinese in innovators. You know, did anyone see TikTok coming? No, because we're too busy on trying to clamp down on Instagram reels and the rest. Uh, again, we have it within our power to root out the bad actors. We have the, the laws are already on the books. You know, someone's committing crimes like it was happening at FTX. Uh, but I do think at, at some point we have to we have to look at our political system and say, look, do we want to promote technology and innovation or do we want them to make all the decisions for us? Yeah. Yeah. Lasowski, you talked about the Luddite contingent. Uh, the Republican Party has taken the House. They're already saying, especially their very populist right wing is demanding the heads of the tech companies. Do you see that to be a problem going forward here for the next two years, especially investigatory wise? Yeah, I, I think uh, obviously that's going to be a big waste of time uh, because where the essentially you want the, the right wing wants to regulate less of the content. But that the problem is, is that the progressive lawmakers in the Democratic Party, they want to regulate more. So I'm actually I'm feeling good about uh, the prospects for technological innovation because I don't think there's going to be an agreement between left and right. It would have to be so narrow that it would not change much. And, you know, it's already been pretty bad. There's there's no political advertising allowed on Facebook. There hasn't been any political advertising allowed on Twitter for a long time. And. You know, I, I think when it comes to questions of content regulation, and I know you've had people on your program talking about Section 230, I, I s sincerely think they're not going to have the power um, nor the muster to be able to turn that over because I think there's we have good standing principles. Uh, it's going to be a large waste of time. There's going to be a lot of angry stuff. It's not all about Hunter Biden and the laptop and how that was censored. Uh, you know, there are bad actors there that we can that we can name and shame, uh, but. I'm I'm more hopeful and only because I know the mechanics of how government works, what they're able to do and what they're not able to do. And uh, I'm, I'm feeling better about this one than I, I was, say, a couple months ago. Yep. Gridlock wins. And amazingly, 230 is probably one of the best accidental laws in history. If you actually go back to how that was written and why it was written and what it's actually accomplished, it's pretty remarkable. Yal Elisovsky, very good friend of ours. We will start having you on more and more going forward, my friend. Been way too long, but we've both been busy, busy men. Let folks know where they can keep track of you until we get you back on Hertel again. All the great work of the Consumer Choice Center. Yeah, we're pretty simple. ConsumerChoiceCenter.org. And you can find me at uh, Yael OSS over there on the tweeters. I'm pretty busy there. Hey, I've got masses on. I've got all this other stuff, but you can find me there on Twitter for now. Yep. He does all kinds of great work. Appreciate you, my friend. Thank you so much for the time and explaining to this so well that even I can understand it as usual, buddy. Appreciate it. Oh, yeah. You heard tell here. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played.
Ah, welcome back to Hurt Tell. Uh, you remember the Mar-a-Lago document story? Yeah, that kind of has fallen a little bit by the wayside. Uh, the documents that former President Trump was keeping, the, D- the DOJ instituted a search warrant. They went in and got it. And much caterwauling ensued, much of it politically driven, not legally driven. And the course of that, of course, President Trump went to court, got an injunction and a district court it started interfering. They did things like the special master and a review process. Well, we got an update on that. The 11th Circuit uh, has denied that ruling and vacated it. I'm reading from our friend Gabriel Maller here. The 11th Court holds that the district court had no jurisdiction to intervene in the DOJ's investigation into the documents at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, I'm going to read from that ruling. We'll link to the ruling. These rulings, man, read these things for yourself. They're pretty plain language, especially rulings like this. They're pretty short. From the ruling, the law is clear. We cannot write a rule that allows any subject of a search warrant to block government investigations after the execution of the warrant, nor can we write a rule that allows only former presidents to do so. Either approach would be a radical reordering of our case law limiting the federal court's involvement in criminal investigations, and both would violate bedrock separation of powers limitations. Accordingly, we agree with the government that the district court improperly exercised equitable jurisdiction and that dismissal of the entire proceeding is required. The district court improperly exercised equitable jurisdiction in this case, and for that reason, we vacate the September 5 order on appeal and remand with instructions for the district court to dismiss the underlying civic action. So what does this mean? Special master, the review process, all of that is gone. It's all stopped. Uh, in the meantime of all this, down under the uh, per curiam order of it says, absent a stay or withholding of the mandate of the appeal to which this is ordered, the clerk is directed to issue the mandate after seven days of the date of this opinion. This wasn't a close case. I'm quoting Gabriel here again. Great follow, by the way. Make sure you follow him. Gabriel Maller, M-A-L-O-R. This wasn't a close case. According to the 11th Circuit, plaintiff's jurisdictional arguments failed on all four factors to be considered for equitable intervention. What does that mean? Uh, No. Yes, you can execute a search warrant on the former president. Yes, it was a legal search warrant. No, it wasn't a witch hunt. Yes, they had the right to do so. No, it wasn't a raid into his private estate for no good reason. Listen, there's been some things happened since then, too. We know that Donald Trump plays fast and loose with the rules. If you don't, you're just being a mark. We're not interested in that. Let's just be fact. We have 50 years of book on the man. We know he plays fast and loose. We know he breaks the rules. We know he lies. We know he exaggerates. Look at what's happened to Mar-a-Lago since then. We didn't touch on it here too much because I don't like to give a whole lot of press to this kind of human garbage. But when he had Kanye West and known white supremacist Nick Fuentes at Mar-a-Lago here recently, that they could just walk in and sit down with the man, it shows how lax he is about this stuff. It's not that he doesn't know who these folks are. It's that he does know and he does not care. No, I don't believe him one bit that he, it's up to him. He's a former president. He should know who's coming and going in his presence. He should have staff that filters who gets to him. And if you don't, that means you don't care enough to do so. That's unacceptable. So yeah, if you're going to let white supremacists sit down and have dinner with you, of course you're not going to handle sensitive documents correctly that, by the way, you weren't supposed to have in the first place. You can put on your political hat and you can put on your team collars and yell and holler about how unfair it all is, but the law should apply to everybody. No, you can't take classified documents wherever you want to. No, you can't just say they're unclassified because you want them to be. Yes, the DOJ had a right to do a search warrant here because he would not play ball with them 
and here we are. If you had a different take a few months ago and want to reconsider it, just put your hand up and say, okay, I've got new information and I'm reconsidering it. Because the court here is very clear. Because the law was clear all along, President Trump was violating it. The DOJ used their powers to intervene in it. You can think whatever you want. That's what happened. He was wrong. Sorry if that upsets you. More Hurtel right after this. Save a little more this month. Chime checking accounts have features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals 24. Banking services debit card provided by Bancorp, Bank NA, or Stride Bank NA. Members of FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Let's finish on a good note. Uh, Murray Halberg died. No, that's not the good note. Uh, The good note is the life he lived. He died at 89. Obviously, a well and truly long life full of many things. Among other things, he was a gold medal winner at the 1960 Rome Olympics in the 5,000 meters. That'd be worthy enough. But have you ever heard this man's full story? Let's go to the AP News. Uh, Wellington, New Zealand, Murray Halberg, who overcame serious injury to win the 5,000-meter gold medal at the 1960 Rome Olympics and later devoted his life to charity work, has died. He was 89. His death was confirmed by Athletics New Zealand, which did not specify a cause. Athletics New Zealand described Halberg as one of the most iconic names in New Zealand sports. Halberg also won gold medals in the three-mile race at the 58 and 62 Commonwealth Games and was the first New Zealander to run a sub-four-minute mile. He achieved all these successes, though his left arm had been withered after an injury playing rugby as a teenager. He later became best known in New Zealand for his work with the Halberg Trust, which helped disabled children play sports. The organization is now known as the Halberg Disability Sports Foundation, and the Halberg Award is presented annually to New Zealand's Sports Person of the Year, and the Halberg Games are staged over three days each year for athletes aged 8 to 21 with physical or visual disabilities. He was truly a legend in New Zealand athletics, Sports Minister Grant Robertson said, but his contributions have been so much more than that. In 1963, he established the Halberg Trust to support children with disability in sport and recreation. Through the trust, Sir Murray has changed the lives of generations of New Zealanders. The sheer joy that we witness each year at the Halberg Games is vindication of his vision. That's a life well lived, folks, overcoming himself and then helping others to do the same. Well done, sir. Enjoy your rest. It's well-deserved. Remember this, man. Go look him up. There's also some YouTube stuff of some of his stuff you might want to check out. That'll do it for Hertel. however you're watching or listening. We sure appreciate it, whether it's on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, any of the podcasting platforms. Uh, we just had a meeting today where I was talking about I can't believe how many people actually check out our little program. Thank you so much for that. If you're watching on the YouTube channel, we have multiple things on there. All the Good Talk interview segments are broke out special. Of course, the full uh, heard tell programs also the long form podcast that we do we've got 45 46 of those in there it's topic specific really deep diving into stuff that's important we also got some short takes in there that you might enjoy make sure you share all that uh, we don't do any advertising outside of our own social media so this is all word of mouth stuff please let folks know where they can check us out so wherever you and yours are we hope you're well we hope you are well fed
We can't wait to talk to you again for more Herd Tell. All the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. So